Listen as doctors Dan Hart from Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry in London and Prathama Chowdhury from the Royal Free Hospital in London discuss the importance of monitoring individuals with hemophilia for safety and efficacy, both in the short term and long term. This podcast is part of a comprehensive educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia. Visit www.genetherapy.ist.org for more information. So, Prasama, thanks so much for joining this ISTH uh, Gene Therapy podcast, in which we're going to explore the importance of monitoring individual persons with hemophilia for safety and efficacy, both in the short and the long term. Given your group has been arguably one of the most experienced gene therapy groups in in the world uh, over the last decade, do you mind just starting off maybe just reflecting on the kind of consenting process, I suppose, when you first started your phase one studies and then your subsequent later phase studies, and maybe how it's changed, but also maybe some of the content, uh, depending on the lessons we've learned from those early phases and and what you might emphasise differently now compared to at the start? Thanks a lot, Dan, and I think it's a great pleasure to be part of this podcast. Uh, I mean, I think you're right. Uh, Over the last 10 years, we've learned a lot about consenting for gene therapy. I think previously when we started, uh, on average, uh, the discussions used to last anything between an hour to an hour and a half. And it used to be done by a physician on two occasions and, again, an advocate on another occasion. So we had different perspectives. We had the clinician giving their summary, and then we also had an independent advocate going through practically a checklist of all the information that was provided in the patient information sheet. I think what we have learned over the last uh, 10 years is that uh, all information does not have the same value. I think there is information that is related to the logistics of running the study, Uh, Although patients uh, will come back to you and say you have not emphasized it, it's often quite challenging because it's a big table. There are multiple visits. You can't make somebody understand how much of a time it is coming three times a week. So I think there is a logistical information, but I think there is also the information which I feel they have to remember, what I would call as the small disclaimers um, that have an impact not just today, but in five years' time and 10 years' time. The two major things that I think are very important for patients to take away is uh, what is the factor level they can expect. That is the first thing, because I think uh, the benefit is related to the factor level, and I think there should not be any misunderstanding of where their levels may be and what is the chance of their levels uh, achieving what has been discussed. And the second one I find is very important is the potential uh, long-term for carcinogenesis. We know that AAV virus, uh, the carcinogenesis is quite limited, but we can't say that uh, we definitely know that there is no risk. And because this is an unquantifiable risk which may present itself in 10 to 15 years' time, uh, I kind of remind them that there is this unquantifiable risk about which uh, they will need to make a judgment call. I think these are the two major things that I have focused on. The third thing I would also say is related to the age of the patient. So if a patient is a younger patient, I'm less worried of us overshooting beyond the normal range. But if it's an older patient, then I would again uh, take time to emphasize on the potential risk for thrombosis 
particularly if we are kind of normalizing their coagulation, what what happens to their risk? How does it revert back to the baseline? And thinking about that range of patients and, and I suppose the, the transfusion transmitted infection issue that affects our older cohort than the, the younger patients who, who, who fortunately weren't exposed to those TTIs in the UK. Is the conversation different for, say, someone who's had HCV maybe for a number of decades before eradication coming to gene therapy? Um, do you think our thoughts about liver monitoring both before and after gene therapy have changed or should change in the future, particularly mindful of the, of the carcinogenesis issue? I think it's more related to the patient selection if we think about carcinogenesis. I, I think more than the long-term monitoring. I think the big question that has uh, we've discussed many a time in the trial management group is would you enroll a patient who has a fatty liver, the mild elevation of a liver function test? Or would you enroll somebody who has got a, a lifestyle that includes probably alcohol consumption that may not be within the recommended limits. Would you enroll a patient who has got diabetes who are prone to fatty liver and therefore are at risk of a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? So I think it's more about the subject selection. Who are we not going to enroll? And I think that can vary between the trials. I think once the vector has been infused, the monitoring for the liver uh, for transaminitis is more related to the concern about the loss of expression with minimal inflammation. So I think the intense monitoring is mainly to make sure that the patient gets the most out of their gene therapy. The second part, which I think you're uh, kind of alluding to, is the long-term monitoring for carcinogenesis in terms of how much monitoring should be done. And what advice should patients be given? Should we recommend to all patients that they do what would result in a healthy liver? And then in terms of monitoring, should we monitor by ultrasound twice a year, once a year, or more often? I think typically at the moment, uh, most of the studies are monitoring at least uh, by ultrasound once a year. Whether that needs to be more frequent is for discussion. But I think this is where probably we need a little bit more of input from uh, hepatologists, particularly with an interest in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I think what we are looking at is a, a conglomeration of risk factors coming from their lifestyle, coming from um, their other comorbidities with the gene therapy adding uh, potentially maybe an additive risk. And then thinking about that, as you alluded to, that quite intense kind of transaminitis risk monitoring in the early weeks and months. Reflecting back on all the patients that you've looked after, how challenging is that as a unit to, to be ready for results and ensure you're, you're, you, know, you know the patients come in for some routine bloods and, and that you as the kind of key decision maker are then seeing those blood results the same day? And I suppose then the challenges of either short or then unintentionally longer immunosuppression, um, which we're seeing in between different platforms and, and uh, your thoughts on duration of immunosuppression. I think uh, what we have uh, learned is that over the many trials, I think prevention is probably better than uh, cure or control. The challenge is uh, once you've had a transaminitis and you start implementing an immunosuppressive regimen, you've already lost some expression. And the loss of expression is quite rapid. Uh, we've seen levels being halved within about uh, three to four days, because of which I think there is a big push. I mean, some of the protocols for a prophylactic uh, strategy 
partly to blunt this loss of expression uh, with uh, transaminitis. It's just buying time so that you have uh, made arrangements for the patient to be, if necessary, be admitted for IV methylprednisolone or other agents as uh, dictated by the protocol. And I think the once the transaminitis has set, and if we don't get a good control, then it tends to grumble on for a period of time. And in some patients, we have seen a loss of expression um, over a period of a year, which can be complete. And it's just uh, not in the trials coming from the Institute. We've seen that in other trials as well published where you see a one-off patient has dropped to zero over a period of time. It goes back to the question that you asked, isn't it? How can we individualize care? And I think the challenge for us is that for every patient, this is a big step. Participating in gene therapy is a big uh, milestone event for them because they're committing the time. They have some expectations and hopes from the gene therapy. So I think it's more about how do we make sure that um, we give the best result for every patient. But in that, we probably are kind of uh, over-treating a group or a certain subgroup of patients. And then everybody is having to put the effort so that the majority of the patients get the best outcome. One of the study platforms um, that, that have started to use some alternatives to prednisolone or, or, or in addition to, is that about steroid sparing and, and, and concern about bone health? Or is, is that very specifically about kind of just trying to optimize immune control of a maybe an anti-capsid response, for example? I think the one of the big things in gene therapy is the predictability of expression. So we kind of want to know if we give a certain dose, what is the level of expression we can get with that dose. And we know that um, the immune management regimen is probably going to be key for getting this predictability of expression. And that's how we ended up with the second agent. And I think partly it's to do with the uh, rapidity of the response. We had quite a steep increase in the levels. And whether that also was contributing to the transaminitis is not clear. I think basically we wanted to have a better control of the transaminitis, um, mainly to improve the predictability of expression. And that's how we ended up with a dual regimen, partly because we know that the duration of immune management in this group of patients is short term. We are not looking at long term treatment. We are looking at the treatment, anything between six to 20 weeks, but not beyond that. And in terms of, I mean, obviously with liver specific promoters in the cassette, but is there also a potential of the steroids used preemptively to actually augment the expression? Is, is there steroid responsiveness in, in the promoters that, I suppose, say in your nine trial, that, that then it's trying to work out how the combination of steroids and the promoter design kind of stabilizes expression? I think with the promoters, what we have seen, and I think others have also seen, is the steroid responsiveness. So, and I think but that is, we know even in normal physiology, the factor eight and nine can increase with prednisolone. So we're kind of seeing a similar effect even in the context of gene therapy. The challenge for us is the steroid responsiveness um, means that we have to decide at what time point we are going to look for the level to assess the long-term response. So for example, in the Freeline study, um, the uh, steroids were started around week three. So you took a level just before starting the steroids and then use that data to kind of extrapolate to what would be the long-term response. Because once the steroids have been started, any level that you measure after the start of steroids 
can't really be used to kind of then predict what is going to be the long-term outcomes for a given patient. Because we need to understand that if we are to kind of adjust the vector dose uh, between trials or between one group of patients and another group of patients. And I mean, are you aware of kind of discussions across platforms about bone density kind of monitoring? It, it, my kind of feeling is it hasn't necessarily hit, hit the radar, certainly in a lot of presentations, you don't hear very much about bone density. But we do know that there's quite a lot of steroid exposure, relatively high doses in some platforms for prolonged periods of time. I mean, do, do you think that's a, a, something that maybe is emerging as a, a, a newer consideration that wasn't maybe considered as studies were designed years ago and, and that we need to think about going forward? Um, I think that's a difficult question, partly from the point of view it is related to the duration of immunosuppression. So if your immunosuppression is going to be within six months, I think then the impact on bone densities are likely to be minuscule. But also with the younger group of patients who have got a normal bone density is less of an issue. But if you have an older patient who has got arthropathy and is probably osteopenic, then in that group of patients, we seriously need to think whether gene therapy is appropriate for them if they're already osteopenic. The last few questions then about um I suppose those older groups you alluded to with with additional risk factors and I suppose overexpression was never really anticipated in either the eight or nine trials in the in the early phases uh, and clearly that the Biomarin study arguably then gave the first hint of true normalizations indeed super physiological levels depending on the assay that was used uh, and now we've seen that with a clinical hold on the on, on the Pfizer uh, eight um, and I know in, in obviously some of the nine studies you know that there have been moments of overexpression um, in terms of th- that conversation with patients about you know, having had severe hemophilia and almost being the situation of needing to be anticoagulated or, or somehow kind of watched for thrombosis risk. How difficult do you think that's been for those participants to really kind of take on board or, or even know what to monitor for if they're getting overexpression in either eight or nine? I think overexpression typically seen during the dose finding part of the studies. I think uh, one studies have gone into phase three the overexpression of factor eight or nine has been quite transient. So I think the question is whether the protocol states if the patients have got concurrent comorbidities which increase their risk of thrombosis, whether you would cover them with anticoagulation for a short period of time. So empirically, people can choose 300 or 400 uh, if the levels have crossed. You then cover them with anticoagulation until such a time as the factor eight levels have dropped down. It's probably not necessary if there are no comorbidities, but if there are other concurrent risk factors, then it is sensible to uh, cover them with an anticoagulation. I think overexpression is probably inevitable if we want to achieve a normal levels because we know that most of the promoters are steroid responsive. So as soon as you start them on prophylactic steroids, you will overshoot if we want to fall into the normal range. So I think it's just that because it is transient uh, overexpression, it's easily mitigated with anticoagulation. Because if you want to kind of uh, get, especially if, if we are going to aim for normal range, if you're just trying for a lower end of normal range where on steroids you're just going to be the upper end of normal range, then the chances of the patients, a lot of them will fall into the mild range, just goes up. 
And I suppose a final reflection about the breadth of potential issues that we need to make patients aware of. I suppose we're quite lucky with the AAV platforms, of which there are clearly many now in both A and B, that inhibitor formation hasn't been an issue. I suppose it's interesting reflecting on the clinical hold on the Sigalon uh, microsphere um, gene therapy technique, the non-viral platform, which is still clearly be, is only a single occurrence in the third patient treated in their press release. Um, but I suppose it, it reflecting on the AAV that it's actually been you know, very reassuring that, you know, as far as I'm aware, no platforms have had inhibitor occurrence. Uh, and indeed, I think you've got a, a clinical trial open for using it for ITI um, for inhibitor occurrence, you know, pre-existing chronic inhibitors. So I think my understanding is that the risk of inhibitor formation is related to the transgene, or the product of the transgene. How much of the transgene has been modified? I'm not aware of the particular trial you mentioned in terms of what the factor eight construct was and how much the factor eight was modified uh, for uh, increasing the activity or for increasing the half-life. So I think within the normal constructs that have been used by the majority of the platforms uh, which are going into phase three, we've not seen, the, uh, we've not seen any excess inhibitor formation. And remember, most of these patients are PTPs uh, who have had no inhibitor. So I think they've already demonstrated that uh, lack of inhibitor development. So therefore, we have chosen a low-risk cohort for enrolling into the studies. And a final question, Prashma, uh, it, it, I suppose in terms of long-term follow-up and, and registry data, I mean, do, do you think we've got the right kind of menu of, of, of content for long-term follow-up? Um, other issues that we, I mean, or, or indeed just kind of within trials and um, samples that should be collected for the, the unknown complications down there? I suppose the unknown unknowns being the big black box. I think at the moment the registries are quite focused on the transaminitis and also the long-term expression. I think you're right. We need to do probably what I would say is uh, widen the uh, scope of these projects to make sure that we accommodate for the unknowns unknowns. At the moment they are quite focused on what we have learned from the trials, but they're not... Um, we have not kind of spread the net wide to look for other things as well. Fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for sharing uh, your, your insights over the years of gene therapy work that you've been doing there at UCL. Um, thanks ever so much for your time, Prasma. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thank you for inviting me. Earn your CME credit by clicking the link for credit. Check back for more podcasts on gene therapy and hemophilia. Additional education is available on www.genetherapy.ist.org, an educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia.